What is Phineology? Here we explore our personal relationships with money, money's nature, and how we exchange value in daily life. Grounding ourselves in the liberal arts, we explore Financial Planning 3.0 from the inside out. Addressing money as the most powerful and pervasive secular force on the planet. Mysterious Money Merits Study. What is Phineology? Here we explore our personal relationships with money, money's nature, and how we exchange value in daily life. Grounding ourselves in the liberal arts, we explore Financial Planning 3.0 from the inside out. Addressing money as the most powerful and pervasive secular force on the planet. Mysterious Money Merits Study. Thank you for joining us for this episode of What is Phineology? Our guest today is financial psychology guru Rick Kaler of the Kaler Financial Group, a longtime friend and inspiration to Richard Wagner, the father of Phineology. Your interviewer today is Jacob Wagner, co-founder and curator of the What is Phineology Project. In today's episode, Jake and Rick dive deep into what psychology and emotional intelligence have to do with our relationship with money and phineology. Thank you and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the What is Phineology podcast. This is Jake Wagner. And on this episode of the show, we have Rick Kaler joining us. Rick, how you doing? Thank you, Jake. It's good to uh, be with you. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, me too. It's uh, I've learned from you a lot over the years, and and uh, really appreciate everything that you and Dad, you know, have talked about and shared. And what you shared with me about your con- the conversations that you've had, and um, and so it seemed like you would uh, be a required person to be on this podcast. Well, if I could uh, absorb. of what I heard your dad say, I I think it would be a a wonderful accomplishment. (laughs) (laughs) I always used to kid with him. I'd say, Dick, you know, you fly the plane at 50,000 feet and I'm a guy, I just got to figure out how are we going to land this thing? (laughs) Yes. And he'd always say, well, that's why I need guys like you around me. <laughs> if I can't make this relevant on Monday morning, then what's the point? Well, that part we can't do, but I definitely hear that onus as far as the, you know, how do we land the plane? And, um, and I'm glad that these recordings are a part of that. Well, I, I'm, I'm thought of kind of in the, the industry or the profession, the um, projection onto me is that I'm uh, a visionary and that I'm conceptual. And I did some testing around that once with Courtney Pullen, who is another good friend of you and your dad. And um, he was pretty shocked that I don't have much conceptual going on, but I have a huge amount of analytical. Hmm. <laughs> and that's the landing the plane part for me, your dad was uh, super conceptual. And so uh, when you get a conceptual and an analytic together, it 
uh, can make a nice balance. So when did you guys first meet? How did, like, what were some of the first experiences that, when did you start collaborating together? Oh, man. You know, the first that I remember of your dad was back in the ICFP retreat days. And, you know, I think my first one was in 83. It was Logan, Utah. And it was back in the time in the 80s when your your dad was a um, leader uh, of the ICFP. And I just saw him from afar. And um, uh, those were the days I was just taking notes like crazy and Eileen Sharkey and and Camp Fain and um, uh, Henry Montgomery and and uh, that crowd. So I knew of your dad, but I really uh, I never knew how do I get to talk to him? <laughs> how do I get in that circle over there and talk with him? And, you know, I I don't what well, we started collaborating in Nasruddin. And even though I joined in 90, I think it's six, 1996, I didn't attend the first uh, retreat or conference until uh, the one at Estes in either 99 or 2000, when we, um, 75 of us did George Kinder's two day. And that was uh, somewhat of the beginning of our collaboration because shortly after that saying about it within a six months or a year we a bunch of us formed this little group we called ourselves the pioneers and that's when i started having the um, opportunity and the the privilege of being locked up with your dad and seven other people for a weekend three times a year so I would say that our real collaboration started around 99 or 2000. And uh, what, what, what was that work? What, what, what was the work? What were we doing? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we talked about that for three <laughs> years. <laughs> the joke was, the, the standing question is, what are the pioneers? <laughs> and I mean, you know, just like your dad, he, the Nazrudin started with him sending out an invitation to a bunch of folks saying, let's get together and talk. You know, there was no agenda or anything like that. And that was the pioneers and drove me nuts. I'm like, I'm going to spend three days with these people. And I, we don't know what the agenda is. You've got to be kidding me. And it uh, really taught me the importance of it's more important who's there than what's on the agenda because the agenda will take care of itself. So, we spent a lot of time wondering uh, where this is going. Where is it? Where is this emotions and money movement going? We talked about forming a guild. We talked about collaborating. We talked about joining our practices, and we never came up with anything that we did as a group except to get together and and meet and have rich conversations and great food. I do remember one really impactful day of all the conversations that we had. We decided, um, uh, I mean, our focus, uh, what we were doing, our focus was on emotions and money. And what does this mean? What does it mean for the profession? What does it mean to walk the walk around interior work around money? And so we took one day once, everybody got an hour and we, well, we decided what we would do is to disclose how much we made 
in the past year and what our net worth was. And uh, that was just an impactful day uh, because I will often say when I'm talking to a bunch of planners that uh, planners often think, think they don't have money issues because they deal with money. And, and that money isn't a taboo to planners because we talk about it all the time. I'll say, well, you know, what, what you might want to do then, if it's not a taboo to you, is uh, at the reception after we're done today, just go up to everybody and tell them how much you make and what your net worth is and ask them, how much did you make last year and what's your net worth? Wow. How that go? <laughs> <laughs> You hear this nervous chuckle going through the audience like, okay, we get it. Uh, I've even, in some speeches, saying, okay, now in, in just a few minutes, I'm going, I don't want you to do anything right now. I'm just telling you what we're going to do in about five minutes. I'm going to ask you to line up here in front of the, the stage. Zero net worth is to my left, and 100 million net worth is to my right. And kind of line up on this stage is where you I, I may even frame it different, like over five million is is to the right. So just be thinking about where you're going to be standing. And you know, faces go white, people just freeze, like, oh my God, no. And of course I don't do it because we'd probably have to have a team of therapists there to help with the emotional fallout. Yeah, yeah, that's a uh, that's some socially that's some social exposure right there. That's really opening up the kimono, um, and maybe a little bit more. And it goes it goes to the depth of uh, how we identify with money and and what the taboos are. So the pioneers, we decided, you know, if we're if we're really serious about this, we better we better take some of the uh, strong medicine. So uh, we did that, and it was quite an insightful day. And also, I mean, I was doing, I did my uh, thesis in college on people's attitudes about money and how that, uh, how, about actually about their attitude about wealth and then their opinions about money and how those related. And um, behavioral finance itself is just like a part of psychology even seems like it came around in about 2004 to 2006. Um, you know, this is pretty ahead of the curve stuff right here. Yeah, I had a discussion with somebody just in the last week or two on behavioral finance and explained to them that, you know, the huge difference between behavioral finance and what, what we're doing in uh, financial psychology, because behavioral finance deals with um, heuristics of the mind and, and saying, uh, uh, calling various, labeling various behaviors like hurting or anchoring. And my point to these folks was, you are not going to get too far with a client by telling them, you know, when you just said that, that's kind of hurting. And uh, oh, now you're anchoring. That's not helpful. It's not going to get us anywhere. It's, it's too macro. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we're dealing with in financial psychology is the micro. Why? Why do you as an individual why do you have these behaviors? Uh, the big label may be you're anchoring, but but what's happening with you on a micro level? Because we're not going to change anybody at the ma- macro level. We're not going to change any behaviors or many. Maybe 20% of uh, money behaviors can be changed cognitively just because they don't know. Like maybe 20, 20% of any weight problems 
can be changed with teaching somebody about fat grams and and uh, protein and calories and diet. But eighty percent of all our financial issues are are uh, illogical finan- financial behaviors, which by the way, are never illogical when we understand the underlying belief system, need to be solved with something di- uh, a lot deeper, just like a lot of, the, uh, of America's overweight problem isn't, <laughs> it's not going to help us learning more about calories anymore than it's going to help us learn more about money to help our, our money behaviors. It goes a lot deeper to the psychology of that person and what's going on in that person, what's gone on in their past. So can you speak a little bit to the the line beha- between okay what what did you so we have behavioral psychology and then you talked about is it financial psychology was that the term yeah, that you were just behavioral with? finance behavioral finance financial psychology financial psychology mm-hmm. or financial therapy uh, it's all kind of the same thing well it is the okay. same thing financial psychology financial therapy are the same thing and then can you speak a little bit about how you see both of those relating to phenology? Uh, yeah. The um, behavioral finance is a lot more heady and it's about the masses. It's about how people in general respond, how people uh, act, what they do at market bottoms, what they do at market tops, what they do when faced with um, – walking two blocks uh, to pay $5 more for an item when one item or $5 less, let's say when one Mm -hmm. item is selling five, a $10 item is selling for $5, two blocks away or a $10,000 item is selling for $9,995, two blocks away. Uh, Most people are going to walk the two blocks to go from 10 to five. Mm -hmm. Most people are not even going to think about walking to go from 10000 to 9995 It's the same $5. So that's behavioral finance. Financial therapy, financial psychology goes to why. It goes to the deeper in, in, in my history as to why I'm doing things that appear to be not in my best interest or... Uh, that appear to be illogical or in areas where I am stuck. You know, when I am um, selling high and buying low rather than label it uh, as something the masses are doing around anxiety, why am I personally doing it? And it, it will really get to the root of the issue. The, the money scripts uh, is something that... Um, we came up with to describe the um, beliefs that we have around money, the the heuristics. It's the personal heuristics, the personal shortcuts that we take in our limbic system personally. Uh, All insurance people are evil. You know, fathers make the money in a household. Uh, I mean, there's an unlimited number of beliefs a person can have. and, And all of these beliefs are true. In some circumstance, and they're all false 
in another circumstance. So manuscripts are personal or partial truths. So it's really getting in at a personal level saying, what do you believe? What is your money history? What were the dynamics of your household? Uh, so it's very, very different from behavioral finance. As to how do they relate to phenology, uh, phenology as I understand it, is the the field or the study of value exchange. So it could relate to a person on how, uh, on a personal level, I relate to value exchange. And it also could look at value exchange on a macro level uh, of, a, you know, currencies of a, a country or just the way that uh, we exchange uh, on a macro level. Yeah. I mean, thanks for pointing that out. You know, one of the elements of this whole phenology subject, you know, if I believe dad is right, I think that he is identified in an entire ology here. That That's why we're here and doing this. Psychology was my bachelor's degree. And, um, and psychology is like uh, 120 years old or something like that. Really, it's, it's a very young knowledge topic. And at this point, there are many hundreds of different areas of psychology and that a part of what I think is going on as we have these discussions about phenology and why we're even starting with what is phenology as the, the way to capture these conversations is that there are many, many areas that we're still going to have to define and redefine as we explore what it means to exchange value. You know, what, it have, what what's happening when, you know, the example you had of, uh, you know, someone walking a couple blocks to, to get a $5 discount and, um, you know, it's the same $5 and it's the same $5. It's the, the, the psyche does something different, but the value exchange portion of it, you know, it's about the act that's going on to me, at least at this point. Um, you know, I'm definitely still defining and redefining what phenology is and trying to look for that moment where it's like, oh, that's where we're exchanging value. And uh, I think that we are all going to have to work together to just see how those dynamics work and, um, and create a you know structured body of knowledge around it, too, because um yeah, exactly. Uh, and as you've talked, I've thought about um, uh, with this being the the um, study of, uh, of value exchange or the whole field of value exchange. There is a very tangible component of that. You know, your your dad was a pretty big proponent of um, Ken Wilber's thinking of uh, of integral. And we've got an exterior and an interior to everything. So that would certainly apply to phenology, where you've got the actual item of exchange, whether it's dollars or complementary currency or uh, a gift economy. And, and the unseen portion of that is behavior around the exchange, Mm-hmm. The, the thoughts and feelings around uh, money and, and how it's viewed. It's, it's very, I think I see it very similar to the equity market. Well, I'm thinking of uh, the shares of REITs that in 2008, 2009 fell 80% from their, their top. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there's no way real estate fell 80%. 
real estate fell, if we could pick a number, maybe 25% in value. But it was the behavior of the markets. I, I think um, a lot of us would concur that the markets are driven by behavior. They're not driven by uh, logic. And so the value of exchange of money is much the same. It's um, ultimately driven by human beings. And that encompasses the whole human condition and, and all of the feelings, thoughts, and beliefs that a person has. Yeah. One of dad's uh, statements was that money is a uniquely human creation. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's nothing natural about money, which was another one of his I, th- I think he called them money truisms at one time, mm-hmm. uh, which I love. I use them all the time. That money is the, the the strongest secular force on the planet, and uh, I love uh, money skills don't come naturally. So mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. There's nothing natural about uh, about money. It is absolutely a human creation. I actually have a bit of a disagreement with you guys on that point there. You know, to to quote some some Star Wars with, you know, on a on another planet somewhere else a long, long time ago, a far, far away, you know, just with the law of large numbers and and physics, I think there's probably, you know, there's a billion, you know, habitable planets in our galaxy alone. And um and when and if any, you know, some other type of life gets to our level of complexity and we're actually having conversations and exchanging ideas and learning and getting to where that we're not scavenging for food in order to get, you know, our nutrition for the next day. Um, I think some of those places might not have evolved money, but I think some of them also had to have. Um, to me, I think that money's more, it's a part of like, it's a part of, I guess, the noosphere and, um, and where we're, we're making this construct in order to actually create the exchange process. Yeah, I'm certainly not going to argue with you on that. And as you were talking, I I thought um, you and I were talking at the be- before we um, started recording about uh, the value exchange, the uh, sacred economics. I think is the name of the book. Sacred economics and Charles Eisenstein. Yeah, right. And I'm I'm uh, you know I think of a an economy that's based on gifting and. There's certainly a value exchange going on there. There's no question about that. Uh, I wonder if that, if we would call what's going on there money. I actually feel that it's um, trance. If we're, I'm going to use some integral concepts for folks, and I just you, you got go and look up some of the the definitions here. But uh, the pre-trans fallacy, the if barter is the pre-state where we're trying to figure out what, how many chickens this goat is worth, for example, and it's never quite an even exchange. And the, if we know that the uh, chickens, you know, $6 a pound and the goats $8 a pound, then we can actually, you know, arrive at a, a true equal answer. When you get to the gifting portion of things, if the basic definition of money is connecting unused resources with unmet needs, it does it exceptionally well, even to like the point of almost divine providence, um, where, where it's like, oh, I have this need. And someone says, I've got you. And, um, and that need is sated quickly. And, and that's why it's trance. But at the same time, the places where we have a gifting economy occur in the world today are always 
short burn periods of time, things from, uh, you know, a three days to a couple weeks, maybe a month. But at the same time, you know, Jack Daniels isn't uh, part of that gifting economy. You know, they still want their whiskey bought in dollars. And that there's, you know, just the gasoline to get to and from the the events where this stuff happens as well. And so a gifting economy is still at this point of evolution, writing on the backs on the back of a monetary economy. Yeah, it's hard. It's just hard for me to get wrap my mind around um, Jack Daniels giving away whiskey as <laughs> gifts or Exxon giving away uh, gasoline. <laughs> like, yeah. well, fill up whatever you need and just give us back something of value. Something yeah, of- exactly. And the, the money makes it so that we can understand both what is equitable and then not equal, equitable. And then also the, something Dad and I talked about a lot was that there will always be liars, cheaters, and thieves. You know, and it's just one of those unfortunate elements of reality and just where we're the culture that we have. And and even if it was a different culture, it's just someone's going to want to take advantage of a system at some point or another. They see how the system works and want to leverage it for themselves. See a time where they can just, you know, someone's not looking and scruples are uh, what they are. Money helps make that clear. And that's a great service, you know. Yep. I was thinking, uh, yeah, as you're talking about the uh, liars and thieves, that there's <laughs> there's always going to be a need for therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, um, especially as we sit here and dive into our money issues. I think that's just going to need you to sit down on a therapist's couch that much more. Yeah, the uh, the amazing. That's not an amazing thing. It's a real challenge, which uh, your dad and I talked about as far as financial planning. How do we get financial planning to the masses? We know to be a profession someday, it's the financial planning needs to be acknowledged as something so vital that uh, society is willing to, in some form or fashion, subsidize those services to people that can't afford them. And then I look at the fact that 70% of the United States lives hand to mouth. 15% are insolvent. So 55% are just uh, hand to mouth. And um, there is so much baggage around money, so much um, trauma, if I could use the word, that uh, prevent people from making um, sound financial decisions. And the only way I really know to address uh, our, the, the chronic aspect of a money behavior that's not self-serving is uh, through some type of therapy. You know, we have found that financial literacy doesn't work. I, I mean, it has to you have to fix the underlying issue. And um, and these money concepts, this the psychology involved in it is it's very difficult and is just barely creeped to the surface of the body socials unconscious. You know, one of the things I've learned from Bernard Leotard was that the Temple of Juno Moneta in Greece, at least especially from like an archetypal level, um, contains uh, some of the order in which we're de- tackling some of our most serious subconscious issues. And that was uh, sex, death, and money 
are some of the things that, that happened in that temple. And, um, you know, and understanding that the sexual revolution happened in the 60s. And now there's a lot, lots of folks are understanding the nature of their existence. And, uh, um, you know, just that entire, the vein of the integral work is really where I, I see a lot of the, that next step going with death. And, um, you know, people have a loving Buddhism and other things like that. And, um, and even Easter. And money is the next issue that's coming down the line. And it's really hard for people to actually wrap their minds around how deeply this is enmeshed in their lives. Yeah, especially if you're a therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dad always said the therapists <laughs> and the priests are who usually go to talk to about these sorts of deep issues, but um, both aren't real great with their money issues. I mean, I've, I think therapists aside, I think the example is easier to see with your pastor, but that they have the role of having to keep up with the Joneses of your community and, um, and that they are surviving through the alms of the congregation. And that's a, that's a lot of burden. Well, the therapists are even taught I mean, it's a real common statement that if you're in this profession for money, you're in the wrong profession. And I remember when we started uh, kind of <laughs> inventing financial therapy, if you will, back mm-hmm. in the early 2000s, I uh, told the psychologists I was working with on all of this that, you know, I, this is, money is such a, a, a looking good portal to deeper financial problems. I think the therapy a profession, mental health profession is going to be all over this because it's like, well, I'm going to go to a, talk to a therapist about finances or I'm going to go to a financial therapist. Just kind of sounds less threatening. But uh, with financial planners to say, I'm going to go do anything with emotions or therapy, uh, I just don't think we'll be quick to adapt. And he said, Rick, I think you're totally wrong. I think it's going to be the other way around. And he was right. Mm-hmm. To this day, I mean, all of the movement toward financial therapy is happening in the financial planning colleges of universities. Uh, you've got Kansas State that has a certification in financial therapy. You have uh, the financial behaviorist from uh, Creighton, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gigi just started a... Um, uh, financial life planning um, certificate, but I can't. Uh, how name. about Texas Tech and Virginia Tech? Well, and they definitely have courses on this. Uh, Georgia University of Georgia has the Aspire Clinic, uh, but all of this is happening from the financial planning side. The only college in the United States, mental health college in the United States, that has given any credibility to financial therapy happens to be South Dakota State University who allowed uh, Sarah Swantner, who is our uh, a planner here at our office. Uh, she did her master's, just got her master's in counseling, and they allowed her to do her internship in financial therapy. Uh, that's something Harvard hasn't done, uh, Stanford hasn't done, Berkeley hasn't done. So that's the first little movement we've seen of any cross-pollination because uh, what I've learned is that the turf wars are huge when it comes to academics. Hmm. So there's a lot to be done to um, open up and continuing to advance the idea of uh, financial therapy and how important therapy is around money. And uh, there's something else I want to say that 
even though we have problems around finance and we sell it, we sabotage ourselves, you know, I, I have paralleled this to overeating. It it's all comes from the same trauma. Um, as uh, one, one psychologist said, it, when we, f- when we follow the money trail, it leads us to the same room as overeating or over drinking or recreational drug addiction or any other type of addiction. Uh, and that's why the uh, therapy can be so uh, helpful. In, in fact, I asked a person, I was at uh, yoga this week and um, uh, there was an instructor who had lost 100 pounds, 150 pounds, and it kept it off for 13 years. And I asked her, I said, have, has anything changed in the way you do money? And she initially said, no, I don't think so. And then as she kind of pondered, she says, oh, 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 yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, a lot's changed in how I do money. In that, that, that's what I found. There's actually a study out of Munich that says there's a direct tie to being overweight and over in debt. Whoa, really? Interesting. And I have known that uh, in what they call hearsay, just with people that I've worked with, um, I find a link between uh, making poor money decisions and poor eating uh, or being overweight. It takes really the same emotional skill set to conquer either. Is it really tying to the the diet series of coping behaviors or is they're foiling over into other uh, types of, of addiction just as quickly? Well, I personally, I think it, it hits any, just about any form of addiction. You can, in the addiction field, what I have seen happen is you can um, somewhat uh, cope or solve or cure one addiction, but the addiction will pop up in another area. So, for example, a, a great example is the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, when you go to an AA meeting, they pretty much have, have solved their uh, addiction to alcohol. But, man, you'll die of the secondhand smoke. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, you know, you can lay down one and pick up another that, uh, you know, or maybe you pick uh-huh. up overeating. Well, overeating is a lot better addiction to have than, uh, say, cocaine because you won't go to jail for overeating. <laughs> But it's all coming from the same trauma, the same wounding. So it's the same with with, uh, overspending. We can solve that. And I guess in our focus of making sound money decisions, we we might say our job's done. You know, you're now making sound money decisions. Great. But if a person picks up just another addiction to deal with the the, uh, internal pain, the unfinished business, whatever is driving them toward making those poor decisions – in the in the big picture, yeah, we've helped. You know, maybe maybe we've we've moved a person uh, to making good money decisions. And I I don't know. I don't know that that's our job of of focusing in financial therapy uh, of making someone uh, completely whole. But I I will say, and I think um, this idea might have even popped up during the pioneers day that we're really in the wellness business Mm -hmm. as as holistic planners. And in fact, our, um, our company purpose is to uh, transform the uh, financial and emotional well-being of people. 
Mm -hmm. And we put emotional in there because it was really hard to separate financial well-being from emotional well-being. Because can you have one without the other? Uh, I don't know. Well, depends what we define as financial well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And also, especially as we, you know, consider just the the neurology of it as well, which is something that you're bringing up earlier, that one of the ways that I, I really had this conclusion at uh, the money quotient gathering in the fall. And actually, before I say this, I want to say something I heard you and, and Marty Kurtz say a number of years ago at a Colorado uh, symposium for that FPA chapter. Um, you were the lunchtime presenter and, and you said that you thought that 95% of decisions involved, uh, of money decisions involved emotions. And then um, Marty was on later. And I um, mean, you know, I think some of this is just to the point more than the literal numbers, but he said he thought that that, was, that number was low and, um, and that it was 99 to 100% of uh, money decisions had a heavy emotional component to it. And so the thought that I had at the money quotient gathering was that this decision-making happens in the limbic system, as you said a little bit ago, and that a part of what's going on with the, the just bringing consciousness to an attention and awareness to the just the whole habit is that we're moving it from the limbic system into the neocortex and from the mid and deep brain into the actual the front of the brain as well and i just think that that's fascinating yeah that jives 100 percent with my understanding of how the brain works and and as you're talking i think we have seen more and more presentations at uh, retreat fpa retreat at uh, napfa meetings about being present Mm-hmm. And I would have walked out on a session about being present <laughs> 20 years ago. I did walk out of the session where the, the psychologist was presenting to us in 1989. Like, what is he doing? Here? <laughs> but like, oh, come on. Getting present in the moment. Oh, you know, give me a break. Uh, let's get out the mutual fund chart. Mm-hmm. Um And it's so important because if we are going to move those decisions out of the limbic system, and actually what I have quoted is uh, Kahneman's work um, where he found 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally in the limbic system. And that's really what drove, that was in 2002 that he won the Nobel Prize. He's a psychologist and he wins the Nobel Prize for economics, figuring this out. And it kind of just became a no brainer to me that, you know, if I want to survive and be relevant, I think I had better learn something about emotions and how we make decisions. And so it, it becomes pretty important to become present to where one can observe become an observer of their emotions. And now we're getting into all sorts of practices. Many of them are spiritual practices. We have uh, Stephen Brody now talking to us about the spirituality of financial planning. Impressive word. Uh, Yeah. uh, I would have called him a total (laughs) crazy man. 20 years ago. Like, what? Mm-hmm. Psychology is enough. Now you want to bring spirituality into it? Oh, this is good. But when you really look at what the definitions are that they're working about, they're not talking about the religiosity of financial planning. We're talking about becoming aware of what's happening. And when we uh, used to have, I used to do a five and a half day um, 
financial therapy workshop and we would teach meditation and we'd teach uh, what we call gentle eating where you don't talk while you eat and you put your fork down during the bites. And we'd always have to bring this back to now you're at a financial workshop. (laughs) What does meditation have to do? with money decisions. What does gentle eating have to do with money decisions? And we're coming back to becoming aware, becoming, uh, having emotional intelligence. I talked to a lady just yesterday who is in, uh, had to quit work because of depression and she has some huge financial challenges. And she will, she'd be communicating with me, oh, in this moment, I'm feeling all this despair and I'm feeling this and I'm feeling that and this is so hard. And right now I'm crying, writing this to you. And I have a conversation with her for an hour and 15 minutes on the technicalities of real estate and deeds and trusts and how this works and how recording works at a, the post or at the recorder of deeds. And she's tracking through this whole thing. And I told her, I said, you know, if, if you were really non-functionally depressed, we couldn't even have this conversation. But what's going on here, and actually she's a, a therapist, so she had some knowledge, is you are processing all of your emotions. This is what, this is called emotional intelligence. And the benefit of emotional intelligence is clarity of decisions and being able to hear. You know, it's it's the story of Scrooge. When he was able to see his past, he was able to come present and start hearing what people were saying about him and how he was showing up. And I get really excited about this because, you know, in this moment, I saw the benefit of this person being aware of what's going on within them and separating the emotion from, okay, now here's the step I've got to take. Cool. Yeah, to use uh, one specific integralism that I think is this is wordy but on point that the subject of the first of the original stage that she was at the subject of one stage becomes the object of the subject of the subsequent stage, and to translate that into a little bit more into uh, common English is that you you are who you are right now and you have your the attachments that you do and that as you progress through life that you realize that that behavior's not you that spending habits not you that emotional attachment even you know that that's not who you are and you can at least make a decision to not be that and um and it's this process of maturing through the sloughing off of those attachments yes i, I mean that's so important to financial maturity Mm -hmm. and uh, making really sound money decisions. So, so dad had this, has this office. It's still, it's still there. And, and all the Scrooge McDuck uh, glyces and prints or glyces and prints are still up on the wall. And, um, and they've always, I make sure to take a little bit of time when I'm at home to just look at these pieces of art and I know that you have your book on Scrooge McDuck too. How did, did you and dad just kind of like jump on that together? And how also does that relate to what you've been discovering with financial psychology and finology? Well, the, um, the book that I helped author was, is called the financial wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge. And it was a story that I used to tell. I, I think it was when I was doing the kinder work 
I've always been taken by that story. And we started looking at it and getting into it. And the deeper, deeper that we looked, uh, the more amazing were the um, stories, the truths that we were able to take out of that particular story. And I could go on for five more podcasts on all of the, the richness mm-hmm. that's in that seemingly very simple little mm-hmm. fable of uh, where the, the, you know, Scrooge had an intervention in his life and he's basically told to go into your past and then your present and your future. And um, actually, that was the model for the first paper ever on the successful treatment of money disorders that was uh, submitted to a peer-reviewed journal was the model of the Christmas okay. So uh, your dad was uh, 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 involved just with uh, discussions that I'd have and fleshing out uh, various thoughts uh, during that period of time. So I don't know how he came upon Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> it's rich. It's really, really rich. I mean, you know, it's as rich as Scrooge McDuck. I mean, you sit there and you look at one of these pictures, one of the, the prints and, you know, there's this safe and it's the oh so safe. And um, and then there's the mine that's going down into the underneath where he has even more gold. And it's the mine all mine. <laughs> and that he can sit there and he can supposedly dive into this, you know, like pool of gold coins and that that's what makes him happy and um it's ironic because like well really is the question that kind of comes up in all of our heads and um and then i was you know raised around like there's the ducktales and some of those shows that happened and seeing the scrooge mcduck's actual wealth that the value and the joy that he found in his life was when he had his boys that he could go and, and love on. And, um, and the money was nice, but it was a, a means to that happiness, not an ends. And, um, and I truly run with that metaphor deeply too. Yeah. It's, um, it really hits at Jacob Needleman's work that, um, money, uh, well, there, there's no inherent, meaning in money you know money is this inanimate object but money absolutely supports and fuels the quest for meaning uh-huh. and uh that's a seems like a nuance but it's a it's a huge huge difference it's super huge i mean from like to use some integral words money is an artifact it has no consciousness it's not what we call a whole on and um and therefore you know as you said it has no consciousness and as we have our mental projections, all of the psychology that we're to, we've been discussing and all of those elements that, that someone has these sometimes extremely strong feelings about money. The, the, uh, there's, there's, the unfortunate part is, and the good part and the unfortunate part is, is that it's just you, you know, that it's your spending habits got you there, your, your beliefs, your attachments, your, your uh, values, and, um, and so it's one of those, it's not, you know, money's got you down and, um, it's, it's about that 
is actually your psychology just being put on display without the problem of you can do that with another human being, but there is still that other human being's personality in there at the end of the day. Money, it's really just you. One way to um, get that across to somebody usually fairly quickly is just take out a dollar bill Mm -hmm. bill, and ask somebody, what has this ever done to hurt you? And bring them back to, no, this piece of paper with the ink on it, what has it done to hurt you? What has this done to help you? Well, and, and eventually they'll see, well, that in itself can't do anything. I mean, it's just a piece of paper. It's how it's been mm-hmm. used. That there's a ledger that's attached to it, you know, in the, you know, in the big ledger in the sky. But, uh, you know, yeah. You don't know if if it was, you know, that bill was used to, I don't know, tip the, you know, your kid who is working a restaurant job. You know, it's a totally possibility. Yeah, it's my, I like your words, uh, Ledger. It's my, my history, all of my personal history that's attached to that, that makes it what Mm -hmm. it is to Mm -hmm. me. And it's also, and it's not, I mean, you brought up another, a number of pieces of nuance that I just want to like pull it out, that there's the piece of paper with the ink. There's the value that is imbued in that piece of paper that is a little bit, you know, you go and you take that piece of paper, you deposit it in a bank, you, you then, you know, all of a sudden that dollar is somewhere else. So the, that value is still, is in a, is a different element. And then there's also, you know, what did, as that value exchange pattern has happened, that someone's gotten lunch and then the person's, you know, gotten a tip and then they've gone and used it for dinner, you know, just that entire exchange process that, you know, actually understanding how that could have had good, bad, or neutral effects on your life the entire time before it came into your possession. And, um, and then we don't know, and we kind of don't even need to be attached exactly because we do know that the value exchange happened, you know, from, uh, at least I agree with Stephanie Kelton's work with there's, if there was no, uh, debt, there'd be no money to spend. And so, um, you know, that's part of like, there's this journey that the value takes as it goes from, you know, and does the buys people lunch, gets someone's internet bill paid, uh, you know, puts roof over their head, makes it so that they can, you know, go out and provide good advice to someone else and help their financial lives be better. You know, that sort of thing, that journey. Yeah. I I was thinking as you're talking, the same exact value exchange can have a negative uh, perception, a neutral perception and a positive perception Mm -hmm. by three different people. And that that gets to kind of what we opened up with is going from this macro level to the micro level of the individual. How does it impact you? How what what's your what's your mm-hmm. history around this? Yeah, what's your baggage too? You know, what are your attachments? Totally, it uh, just drives the whole value exchange, doesn't it? So it's a pretty integral part. Now, getting back to one of your first questions, it, uh, the, the emotional, uh, psychological, neurological uh, issues are all a, a really deep part of uh, phenology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, you know, and the psychology clearly, you know, abuts right next to phenology as well. And then on a, another wall of 
the, the knowledge of phenology, we have economics and um, and sociology and all sorts of stuff that we haven't even yet concluded. So yeah, it's uh, there is a lot yet to be discovered, and that's um, why we're just taking these first uh, pioneering steps with uh, this first season. What is phenology? Who knows? Maybe someday the uh, in the uh, psychology, economics uh, are all going to rest in the phenology department. <laughs> well, I mean, for me and how I've thought about this for the last decade, we've been talking about it is that it, there's, I'm not going to get the cliche quite right, but you'll get the gist of it where it's like, when you go to college, you go and you learn the, let's see, the biology is really chemistry, the chemistry is really physics, the physics almost like religion and theology when you get far enough into it, into the quantum world and all of that stuff. And so just these fields are related. And one of the things that I think is so important, especially as we're setting the groundwork for phenology, is that we can identify those distinctions between uh, psychology and the other areas of knowledge and phenology, which is just so hard to pull out of our subconscious and actually really, you know, identify the issue. And it'll get easier and easier as we add these words and I'm going to have these conversations. Absolutely. It, uh, I, I appreciate the work that you're doing and trying to um, continue to flesh this out and uh, to see where it goes. And it'll be interesting to look back 10 and 20 years from now and and see where we are with all of this it is it is i'm really looking forward to it and um yeah we'll have to revisit this conversation then and a whole bunch along the way so rick we've been talking for a good while it's definitely time to start to bring our conversation to a close what else do you have any other things that you want to make sure that the audience uh knows about <laughs> that you can fit into a few minutes. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a, we'll we'll uh, we'll see how. Uh, yeah, you'll have a whole lot to contribute to this project as we. Proceed. Well, you know, there's hours of of material, and uh, didn't exactly know where this conversation would go. So I think we have said everything that uh, there there was to be said. There's nothing burning that I've written down that I've said. Oh, I. We've absolutely got to get back to that. I think we've really covered everything uh, that was coming up in the moment uh, during our conversation. And I, I like kind of how we've ended it where we began. It's uh, a really nice thread through all of our conversation about how all of this uh, interreacts and interrelates and, and weaves together. And with that, Rick, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time and sharing with me and with the audience. And with that, folks, I'm going to wrap up this episode of What is Phenology. Uh, make sure to like, subscribe and, uh, and share this uh, wonderful wisdom that Rick has uh, shared with you today. And with that, thank you. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.